very, very nice. Imagine arriving at a, a party only to find out too late that it was a costume party. And you're the only one dressed in your regular clothes. Well, for some of you, you'd be okay. But even worse, imagine thinking that it was a costume party. And you arrive and find out that that's next week and you come in as Daffy Duck. <laughs> well, those things would be bad, but imagine being, uh, going to a dinner party and, and being thrown out. Imagine being, going to a dinner party, a wedding feast, and not only being thrown out, but thrown into eternal fire for having the wrong garments on. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son now remember this is a parable and it is a parable of the kingdom of heaven the king arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
So in this parable of the kingdom of heaven and the marriage of the son, which would be Jesus, there are some there who, if they do not have on the proper wedding garments, would be cast out. You may wonder, well, what are those garments and where do they get them? Look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with with her jewels. It is God himself who adorns us with the the wedding garments, garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness. Now let's go to um, Romans chapter 3. As you turn there, I just want to call to your remembrance uh, Revelation chapter 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb the last thing that happens in uh, Revelation 19 before the coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom. We see a scene in heaven with Christ and his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb and they are arrayed, they're clothed in garments of righteousness. So we have the same kind of imagery going on. To enter heaven, one must be clothed in righteousness and it must be the right Righteousness, not just any old righteousness, not self-righteousness, not your own declared righteousness. It has to be God's righteousness, the right righteousness. So where are you going to get those garments? I believe the Apostle Paul addresses that here in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And <clears throat> we'll only get through uh, verse 23 today and we'll... Lord willing, pick up the rest of it next week. This is a a very significant passage theologically. In fact, uh, Martin Luther, in the uh, side notes of his Bible, put, this is the chief point, the very central place of the book of Romans and of the entire Bible, this passage. First of all, we see the righteousness of God is apart from the law. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God finally picks up that thread again back in chapter 1, verse 17. If you look back there to um, where, where we began with the gospel in chapter 1 verse 16 and then one seventeen says for in it meaning in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is as it is written the just shall live by faith 
The next verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, un and unrighteousness of men, and so forth. From that point on, chapter 1, verse 18, through where we ended last week, chapter 3, verse 20, has been uh, nonstop judgment. Here's why God is judging the world. Here's why God is wrathful against mankind. Here's why the condemnation is just and is coming. So that whole section has been on the wrath of God. And finally, we get back now to the righteousness of God, chapter 3, verse 21. The summation of what God has been saying in chapter 1, 18 through 320 uh, may be found in chapter 310, if you look at that. In this short summary statement, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There's no one deserving of righteousness. All are deserving of judgment and death. When we come to verse 21, notice the first two words. But now. But now, things are changing. But now, there's something different coming. But now there is finally an answer after verse after verse, passage after passage of condemnation, wrath. But now the righteousness of God. But now shifts from the old era of sin's dominion to a new era of salvation. But now shifts from what man did to what God has done. <laughs> from the unrighteousness of man to the righteousness of God. But now shifts from wrath to redemption, from judgment to glory, from, from guilt to justification. It is the revealing of this righteousness Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. <clears throat> and now just for one more time, go back to Romans 1, 17. <clears throat> for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, if you look at chapter 3, verse 21, notice the, the difference of terminology here. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. So that phrase has been added now that, that Paul has shown conclusively that it is not by the law in any way that someone can come to have righteousness with God. He says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It goes back to verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's why it's so important that 
But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, without regard to the law, is revealed. Righteousness must come from someplace else than the law. The law has been proven that uh, it can't do it. It's not going to make anyone righteous. It just exposes the sin of man and the need for righteousness, but it can't heal that wound. It can't supply that need. Romans 8, chapter 3. <clears throat> For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What, what we couldn't do because we were weak in the flesh, the law could never do in us, God did by sending His Son. So the righteousness of God is apart from the law. The apart from means without or separate from. The law was never meant to provide righteousness. If I may just uh, recall a, an illustration from last week. Uh, the, if you have a broken bone or suspect you do and you go to the doctor and you have an x-ray, the x-ray will reveal the problem it will highlight where the break is and show how severe it is but the x-ray itself could never do anything to heal the broken bone and that's how the law works it's like an x-ray machine it shows the problem it details it but the law can never heal it it takes a great physician to do that and that's who our God is But that doesn't mean there's no connection to the law. So we read the rest of this, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So here's a curious statement. It is separated from the law, but it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is uh, what, what theologians sometimes refer to as continuity and discontinuity. And here we have it in one verse. The idea of, of um, discontinuity is the, the separation of the Old Testament from the New Testament, which we recognize. They're, they're different. They're distinct, aren't they? The Old Testament under the law, the New Testament of grace, the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices, New Testament, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ... They're, they're discontinuous. They're, there's a discontinuity between them. They're different. And that's part of what the verse 21, the first part is saying, that the righteousness of God separated from the law is revealed. But the second part of the verse, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, shows that there is continuity as well between the Old Testament and New Testament. It's not like we now take the Old Testament books and throw them out and we only have a little New Testament. That's all that's left to us. I mean, why do we still have the Old Testament? 
because there is a continuity of God's plan as, as God is working out his plan of redemption since the garden with Adam and Eve all the way through time with Abraham and through Moses and, and David and the children of Israel and then Jesus coming. It's, it's all part of the plan of redemption and there's this thread that runs through it that holds, it, holds them together. And so although the law was never meant to bring the final answer, the law always pointed to the cross and the final answer, the Messiah who would come and deliver his people. So in that way, there's continuity between the old and the new. So that's what I mean. This verse shows both continuity and discontinuity. And the reason that's important is that there are some forms of theology that want to go one way or the other. They emphasize the the continuity and forget about the discontinuity or the other way around and it gets you into trouble if you go off on either extreme and what Paul is showing that they harmonize perfectly in this one verse verse 22 the righteousness of God is through faith we read 21 and 22 together but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The, even the righteousness of God through faith. Having brought up the righteousness of God in verse 21, he's talking about it again the righteousness of God which is through faith. As Bildad asked Job in Job 25.4, how can a man be made right with God? When man is a creature and God is the creator, and man is sinful and God is holy, how can a man be made right with God? And that question has plagued humanity for thousands of years. And man's proposal has always been by works. We will do something to merit favor with God, to earn his approval. That has always been man's answer. Just think of a few examples. Upon hearing John's fearful warnings about God's judgments the multitudes were questioning him saying then what shall we do Luke 3:10 the crowd that Jesus had miraculously fed the previous day came to him and asking asked him what shall we do that we might work the works of God the rich young ruler asked Jesus teacher what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? After hearing Peter's sobering message at Pentecost, some of the listeners said to him and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? As he lay blinded on the road to Damascus, the Saul looked to the Lord and said, What shall I do, Lord? The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And that is the constant, continual answer of man when he realizes there's this void between him and God this, that he cannot connect to God and he must appease him somehow. It's, what can I do? Throughout history, that has been man's approach. I thought John MacArthur had a, an excellent comment on this. He said, uh, the very reason that religion is so universally common to mankind reflects man's attempts to answer such a question as, how can I connect to God? People cannot escape feelings of guilt, not only for doing things they know they, that are wrong, but for being the way they are. Man's sense of lostness, loneliness, emptiness, and meaninglessness is reflected in the literature and archaeological remains of every civilization. So are his fear of death, of existence, if any, beyond the grave, and of divine punishment. Nearly every religion is a response to those fears and seeks to offer a way of reaching and satisfying deity. But every religion, except Christianity, is man-made and works-centered. And for that reason, none of them can succeed in leading a person to God. Scripture makes clear that there is indeed a way to God, but that it is not based on anything men themselves can do to achieve or merit it. Man can be made right with God, but not on his own terms or in his own power. In that basic regard, Christianity is distinct from every other religion. As far as the way of salvation is concerned, there are therefore only two religions the world has ever known or will ever know. The religion of divine accomplishment, which is biblical Christianity, and the religion of human achievement, which includes all other kinds of religion, by whatever names they may go under. Excellent point that if you look to all the religions of the world, they're, they're so different, but they have this in common. They all try to reach God on their own terms. Christianity is the only religion in which God reaches down to man, in which God sacrifices himself for man. The righteousness of God is through faith. So God requires faith. And not just faith in itself. It's not as if, if I just believe hard enough, I can be saved. But faith must have an object, and that object must be Christ alone. It's not just faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So number three, the righteousness, righteousness of God is in Christ. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He is the object of saving faith. So there, Jesus said, are two ways of man. There's the broad way, which leads to destruction and many are going that way. Most people are going the broad way. It's the easy way. It's the way most people are going. And so we just 
people just get caught up in it. Seems right, makes sense. But then there's the narrow way, the difficult way, which leads to eternal life. And there are very few who find that. Jesus said, I am the way. It's like there are two doors. There's a, there's a door that says works. And if you go through this door of works and try to enter heaven by your good works, you, you think that will help you, save you. But it leads to hell and destruction. Anyone who goes through that door is lost forever. There's a door of works and there's a door of faith. And those who believe in Christ who said, I am the door of the sheep. Anyone who's, who enters in by me shall be saved. Anyone who goes through that door by faith has eternal life. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone is the object of saving faith. Now, if I said, I believe that my car can fly me to the moon, what would you think? Gary's finally lost it. We knew it. It was coming. It's proof. Well, yeah, that wouldn't make much sense to you if I said, I believe my car can fly me to the moon. And if I believe hard enough, okay. But what if I said, I believe that a NASA craft can fly me to the moon in its next moon launch. And you would say, go for it. <laughs> no. <laughs> it would be more believable, wouldn't it? Now, what has changed? The object of my faith. See, the object of my faith is my car to get me to the moon. That's ridiculous, right? But if it is a NASA spacecraft, well, you know, they've been there before. That could happen. That's believable. So it's the, the difference is not my faith. The difference is the object of my faith. And so it is with salvation. It's not just having faith. It's the object of your faith. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? If it is, then he will bring you home. You will be saved. <clears throat> It's faith not only in Christ, but faith in the person and work of Jesus. <clears throat> uh, to have faith in the person of Jesus is to understand who he is. It's not just saying, yeah, I, I believe that there was an historical figure that lived long ago. He's a good prophet and teacher and so forth. But it is, is to understand to acknowledge, to bow down to, to worship this person of Christ as the Lord of Lords, sovereign God, creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the, the coming king, the great high priest, the great I am, the good shepherd, 
the Holy One, the Redeemer, to, to know Him like that, to know the person of Christ and to bow before Him like that. To know Him, to have faith in Him, the person. But even, James says, the demons believe that and they tremble because the demons know that they are not redeemable. Only humankind, mankind is redeemable. It's God's grace to us. So we must also have faith in the work of Christ that he is able to save us and that he has done what is needed to save us. To have faith in the work of Christ that his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection are sufficient to pay for every sin in our life. We rest fully and completely on that, that it is finished in him. The price is paid in full. The work of Christ is sufficient to handle all my sin. But you see, you must have both. Because there are some people who will say, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and it sounds like a great deal. I mean, I get this for nothing? I get this for free? It's, sure, sign me up. And yet they haven't thought about the person of Christ, who it is they're saying yes to. And that's why I believe it has to be faith in both the person and the work of Christ. There, you can't separate those two things. He is Savior because He is Lord. He could die a perfect death and make the perfect sacrifice because He is perfect God. It's faith in Him. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So number four, the righteousness of God is needed by all, and it's stated in several ways here. It is to all who believe, for there is no distinction. No one may lay claim to righteousness by merit, but anyone can receive righteousness by faith. So faith is the great equalizer. No matter what your background, no matter what you may or may not have done, you may or may not be, no matter how rich or poor, educated or not, nothing matters but this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith is the great equalizer. It's to all who believe, for there is no difference. For anyone in the whole world, there is no difference. Sherry and I uh, went to a concert last week, and we were waiting in line to be seated, and um, ushers were taking people into the auditorium to, to our ticketed seats. And I couldn't help notice the difference of um, the people there. How, how differently they were attired. That some of them were, were very dressy uh, for this concert. And um, 
Others had on uh, extremely casual, informal clothing. Uh, it, you, could, you could tell there's such a wide variety of kinds of people, background and so forth, but they're all coming together for this concert. And it didn't matter how old or young they were, how small or big they were, or anything. It didn't matter how they were clothed. It, the only thing that mattered to that usher to let them in was, do you, do you have a ticket? You have a reservation. That's all that mattered. And so it is with receiving these robes of righteousness from God. It doesn't matter what you look like, what your background is, how you're dressed, or any of those things. It, it only matters, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes or no? I don't mean to reduce it all down to just having your ticket punched to get into heaven, but just to, as the analogy of having to have that as your entrance. Without Christ, you will not enter. But it is for all who believe, all who believe in Him, no matter what, without distinction, they will be saved. The righteousness of God is needed by all because it is first of all offered to all who believed secondly for all have sinned and this is a great summary statement for all that Paul has been saying up to this point about the condition of man for all have sinned up to this point he's been making a case that being a Jew doesn't make one more or less worthy of righteousness than being a Gentile. The best law-practicing Jew had no more claim to righteousness than the worst pagan Gentile, right? They had no more rightful claim to righteousness because there's no difference. The same way, being a patriotic American does not make one more worthy of righteousness than being an Islamic terrorist. You are no more righteous and no more worthy of it. Now, we would judge that differently, wouldn't we? We would say there ought to be a difference. But when you really think about it, why should there be a difference? Well, because we are, what? Without Christ, we are all unworthy. There is no difference. We all must come to the cross and plead His blood alone. We all have on soiled, stained, unrighteous garments. As Isaiah says, even, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. We have all sinned. We all need His righteousness. And finally, we all fall short of God's glory. <clears throat> verse 323 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I was a, a boy, I used to go to a lake down the road from my house with some friends. And one of our favorite things to do was to try to jump out into the lake. And there was a, um, a pier that went out into the lake, probably 10 feet or so. And there was this boom over the end of it with a rope hanging down, a big solid rope with a knot at the end. And so you'd take a flying leap at that rope and grab a hold and lower down on the knot you could get the further you could project yourself and see how far you could fling out into the lake and it was great sport you got to get wet you got to brag about how far you went compared to others and we all tried to jump towards the other shore and some of us were better than others went further than others there was always someone who went further than I did. But none of us ever got near the shore, which was about a half a mile away. <laughs> we all jumped as far as we could, but we all fell short. And that's what God is saying here. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You, your best effort falls woefully short. Short of what? The glory of God. God created man in his image. And the original specs called for man to reflect the image of God which would be the glory of God. If the image of God is glorious, and God, God made man in his image, man was to reflect the glory of God. That's why God said, I, I believe, why God said, you shall not make an image of God. Well, why not? Why not make an image of God? Because God already did it. When God made man, what did he make him as? In the image of God, right? So God's already done it. For us to try to do it would be to duplicate what God has already done. It's not about making an image of God. It is about God himself restoring the image in us. That is what the plan of redemption is about. We are being transformed into the image of who? Christ, who is the very image and likeness of God, right? Hebrews 1 says he is the glory of God. All, all the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7 tells us, all the glory of God is in Christ. And if we are made like Christ, we reflect his image. So man was created, uh, designed to reflect the image of God, the glory of God. But sin entered in. With the first man and woman, sin entered in and marred that image. Marred it beyond recognition. 
so that to look at the, the image of human beings, we don't see a reflection of God anymore. It's been marred by sin, and we are all sinful. Think about it like this. We are, would you hold that for me? Just hold it over your head so they can see it. We're all supposed to be the image. Can you see yourself, anyone back there? There you go, okay. All supposed to be the image of God. But sin entered in, and look what happens. Hold a little bit closer to you there. (laughs) What a loving brother, I tell you. I I can't believe you did that. (laughs) But you get the idea. If the hammer hit that mirror, the image would be shattered, right? Just shattered. And the mirror itself couldn't, couldn't pick its pieces up and put itself back together. That's what what you are like, that's what I'm like. We're, like. we're supposed to reflect God's image, but we've been shattered by sin, and we can't pick up the pieces. We're, we're the mirror. So we need God to put the pieces back together to build us up into the image of God. Romans 1, 22 and 23. Just looking quickly at a few passages on this. here's what happened in with mankind and losing relationship with God professing to be wise they became fools notice verse 23 and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things So we change the image of God to the image of man. We make God in our image, basically. Chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which will be restored. Chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice that this is the highlight. This is is the plan that God is working, to be conformed to the image of his son so that we reflect Christ's likeness perfectly. That's the plan, to restore that image, to be predestined to be conformed to the image of the son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. How did God do this? Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And God counts it as a past tense here because from his viewpoint, it's a done deal. Our glorification and reflecting the image of God being Christ-like is so sure he can put it in the past tense so the plan of redemption is the story of how God is restoring um, redeemed man back to the image of God 
So uh, back to Romans 3. To be image bearers of Christ, we must be made righteous. To be made righteous, we must have faith, which depends solely and completely on the saving merits of Christ. How that works is answered in the next few verses, uh, verse 24, 25, and 26, which, Lord willing, we'll get to next week. Um, And then the week after, Jeremy's going to uh, finish this passage in 27 through 31 to put the capstone on it. But um, I'd like the worship team to come up and the rest of us turn back to Romans 5. As the worship team comes up, turn to Romans 5 and we'll just look at a few verses here together. Romans 5, starting at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We stand in awe of God and in awe of the mystery of the cross, which we cannot comprehend. But we know that while we were yet sinners, worse yet, while we were still enemies of the cross, Jesus died for us. And those who are in Christ Jesus, who have faith in him as Lord and Savior, though we were one time enemies, we will be seated at his table and we will be clothed in the robes of righteousness which he provides. It's all by grace through faith so that God gets all the glory. And to us belongs the privilege of of worshiping him and praising him and saying, Jesus, thank you for what you have won for us. Let's stand together as we sing that song in a closing.